and welcome to the seven innings podcast i'm your host amanda scarborough filling in for the voice of softball again beth moens we miss her so much we had another packed week of softball this week every week seriously is so packed um as we completed week three of the college softball season and somehow i don't know how this is happening march is tomorrow um on today's podcast we'll be talking about oklahoma most certainly rebounding from its loss to baylor uh, a recap, some of the other takeaways from the Mary Nutter and Palm Springs that happened. And plus, I mean, believe it or not, there were actually some other really good matchups outside of Palm Springs that happened outside of the Nutter. We have an interview with the one and only Monica Abbott, who just retired last week. We'll talk about the real life of a softball student athlete uh, and a Tennessee team who seems to be flexing its strength early in the year. And of course, we'll shag some stats plus answer some of your questions from the mailbag. So stay tuned for that at the end. Let's start with the leadoff hitter, number one on your lineup card. Oklahoma makes a statement, the Sooners' revenge. Oklahoma went 5-0 and at the Mary Nutter Collegiate Classic, beating Fullerton, Texas A&M, Utah, LMU, and in their final game, absolutely dominated UCLA in the most anticipated matchup of the year that played out Sunday morning when OU won 14 to nothing in five innings. Uh, Michelle, what's your takeaway from the Sooners right now? Well, I think um, Coach uh, Patty Gasso said it best is that she was excited to see the response. That was her uh, in her interview after the Baylor loss. So the response was obviously epic. I mean, they just rolled through the Mary Nutter. They outscored their opponents 50 to four. Um, but I think the game that most all of us had our eyes on was the UCLA game Sunday morning at 9.30 a.m., which, again, I mean, that that's an early game. I always thought that that start time was, was an interesting. I'm sure it was for flight schedules and stuff. But but that Sunday morning game really um, was intriguing to me because of the way uh, they just came out and dominated. And I was looking through the stats and, um, you, you know, again, they were strong through the whole Mary Nutter. But I feel like going after number one, because UCLA had just taken it from them, there was some extra spice in the Sooners in that game. The things that jump off the stat sheet for me is that obviously the shutout, but that UCLA only had 18 at-bats or 18 plate appearances. Oklahoma, they had 36, twice as many in that five-inning game. 20 hits. How about three doubles, a triple, six home runs? I mean, and against the pitching staff that UCLA has, yeah, it's just crazy. So their other 13 games before UCLA, they had hit 15 home runs, six home runs against UCLA. So it really was just about complete domination all the way around. Um, you know, it was it was just impressive. UCLA, um, as good as they are, Oklahoma just really took it to them. Uh, and I could keep talking and talking, but I won't do that because I know, Kayla, I know you've got some uh, some information to add as well. Yeah, no doubt, Michelle. Uh, you know, after Oklahoma loses, it's like waking a sleeping giant. Every time that we've seen them lose in the last three years, they take it out on their next opponent. They take it personally. They take the loss personally. They go hard. They play with this fire and this fierceness that is like unmatched. So it's really, really interesting to see that Patty Gasso wanted to see how they responded. Like, 
I don't worry about the Sooners responding. They always respond. Like, think about last year when they lost to UCLA in the Women's College World semifinal game. Bruins were on the brink of elimination. UCLA beats Oklahoma. OU comes back later that afternoon and beats them 15 to nothing. They go out and dominate their next opponents. So not only that, um, but I thought OU did a fantastic job of like using the crowd. Like if the stage is higher, they're playing the number one team, they play better. Like they feed off that energy. There's no pressure. It's all energy and they thrive in those environments. So that's what's cool. Mary Nutter was packed. They thrive there. Um, second of all, I or third of all, whatever my point I'm on. Uh, Michelle, you mentioned this, like the stats in that game, the box score was unreal. They were aggressive. UCLA had no walks in that ball game. UCLA didn't give up a single walk in a 14 to nothing run game. That means that OU earned every single piece of that W. They hit, they had 20 hits. They like smoked the ball and UCLA made some mistakes from the pitching circle. Like they served up a couple fatties over the middle of the plate, but also OU hit some bad pitchers pitches out of the park. Like Jada Coleman hit one at her shoulders out of the park. T.R.A. Jennings first hit the ball game was, I think, a double. It was like a low outside drop ball that was breaking away almost towards the other batter's box. And she like drove it to the gap in right center field. Like they're a bad ball hitting team. And Maddie, you and I were texting about this this weekend. We were watching it. Like their swings are so good. They stay on plane. They stay through extension for a really long time. Their extension has purpose. It's directional. And they're disciplined in their bat path. And Every single team has hitters like that, but nobody else has 12 hitters like that. That's what makes OU so good. So, I mean, overall, really impressed. Also, side note, welcome back, Kinsey Hansen to the lineup. Had four hits, two home runs, nine RBIs on the weekend. The Sooners were rolling, like you said, Michelle. Really, really impressive weekend for them, Amanda. Yeah, they definitely looked like the Sooners offense that we've come to expect out of them for the past couple of years and definitely up-leveled their offensive game from the 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 opening two weekends, I would say for sure. And to put a bow on OU's big weekend, they hit 417 as a team, made zero errors and gave up just four earned runs. Freshman Jocelyn Erickson, who, by the way, they actually do call Jossie, even though that was Jocelyn Allo's um, nickname, led the team an average with a 600 batting average. And as you mentioned, Kayla, I, I think it was huge that Kinsley Hansen was back uh, in the lineup with those nine RB- RBIs. Um, but of course there were, you know, 20 other teams at the Mary Nutter classic. So let's head to number two on the lineup card back to the desert, um, which, you know, OU was playing in Palm Springs, but there were so many other games. I was there. It was one of, if not the rainiest Mary Nutter classics I've ever seen, or maybe they've ever had, but somehow they got in 66 out of 67 games. The only game that was um, lost was Texas A&M versus Utah Valley. They were playing deep into the night, like past midnight, and unfortunately couldn't finish that game. Also to know Arizona State and Iowa State dropped out of the tournament before it began, uh, but it left a ton of other good games that got to play out. So Madison, what stood out to you on the weekend in Palm Springs? There were really so many teams that I would love to highlight all in one area, but I'm going to just focus on uh, the Kentucky Wildcats. And I think it's a team that we really haven't talked about a ton throughout the the rest of the season, but uh, Stephanie Schoonover has really made an impact for that team. And I feel like when we think of Kentucky over the past couple of years, it's all been about 
it's been about them trying to find that ace in the circle. And I think Stephanie Schoonover has emerged as the ace for that staff. Now they have a bunch of different arms that they can throw at you, but she's already got 75 strikeouts on the year. She looks very composed in the circle. I love the way that she mixes speeds. And if you can mix the, mix the speeds with that good velocity, you're going to have a good opportunity to get some people out. And offensively, I like their balance of speed and power. And when you have somebody at the top of the lineup, like Kayla Kowalik, she's going to get on pace at a nearly five, 100 clip. You've got Aaron Koffel in the lineup. Riley Smith is doing some great things for them as well. Vanessa Nesby, uh, Grace Lorsung, a freshman for them, had a big swing this past weekend against UCLA. So I really think they have this great mix of speed and power in their lineup. They're aggressive on the base pads, but also since they've got that pitching staff going with Stephanie Schoonover, I definitely think that they're a team that we're going to be keeping an eye on throughout the rest of the season. But I know there were so many other teams to talk about, so I'm going to pass it on to somebody else before we go on. Yeah, one thing to note, Maddie, is that uh, Kentucky will actually travel to Norman and have to face Oklahoma. They'll play them twice this weekend. So just wanted to to point that out. Jenny, um, what stood out to you? Yeah, well, you have to give a nod to Kentucky with Schoonover in the circle. I do really like the way that she has stepped forward as the ace. I had my eye on Fullerton. They've gone three and two in each of their three weekends of play. And I'm wondering when are they going to be able to break the cycle and come away with more than three wins in a weekend. But this last weekend in Fullerton, they had wins over number 24, Oregon, Oregon State, and number three, Florida. Their losses came to San Diego State and Oklahoma. So I think whenever you face Oklahoma, everybody's like, okay, I understand that one. But there's two names that you really need to know on this Fullerton staff. The first one is Mike. Sutherland. She is a right-handed senior in the circle. She was just named pitcher of the week in the Big West for the second time this year, and we're only three weeks in. She threw the shutout against Oregon, which was a complete game three hitter. She threw the shutout against Oregon State, a complete game two hitter. Um, She throws in the low 60s, and we're talking a little bit about those thumbers and those mid-major teams that are able to come in and find these pitchers that can nibble corners with the best of them. Sometimes Sometimes a lower velocity is harder for those power five schools to hit because they train to hit the 70-72. So when these pitchers come in with an amazing changeup like Sutherland has, but then also movement that just stays on the corners and never comes through the middle of the plate, they are so hard to hit. And Micah Sutherland is that pitcher for Fullerton. You also need to be aware of Hannah Becerra. She's a junior power hitter on this team and was named Big West Player of the Week. She had three home runs on the weekend, including a walk-off shot for the upset win over Florida. So came through in a big moment with a big bat. And then Megan Delgadillo for Fullerton, the reigning Big West Player of the Year. Oh, don't worry. She had 50 stolen bases last year. She's a leadoff hitter with great speed. So they've got some really interesting tools and they just need to put them together a little bit more consistently to come away with a better weekend than three and two as they head out to the Judy Garman Classic next week. And I'm going to jump in and talk a little bit about Florida because I think all of us um, (laughs) kind of looked at the first box score and was like, all right, what the heck just happened to Florida? They're a top five team and UCLA just destroyed them in a a five inning game. They lost uh, 10 to nothing. Um, So the first thing I noticed when I looked at it and I'm kind of digging through everything is where's Skylar Wallace? She's not in the lineup. And so of course we get out on the, uh, the Twitter and start moving around like what's going on and we're, we're 
you know, our seven inning podcast text chain, Hey, where's Wallace? And uh, we find out that unfortunately she was sick and did not uh, make the trip, but Florida overall out there, you know, they struggled. They beat uh, UC Riverside in their second game, uh, but then lost to Oregon and then Cal state Fullerton in extra innings. So basically they go one and three out there. And, And, you know, when you think about athletes that are game changers and different makers for programs, Skylar Wallace is it. She is definitely the straw that stirs the drink uh, for Florida. I mean, she has energy. She has power. She plays with that pizzazz. She's a 545 hitter, nine for nine stolen bases. And when that is not in your lineup, it hurts, uh, you know, specifically as well defense. And that's the thing that I really notice is that this is a Tim Walton team that typically is error free throughout a tournament. They had an error in every single game and two, two errors in that Cal State Fullerton game that they went on to drop um, five to four in eight innings. So I really think when you look at Florida, if they get Skylar Wallace back and she's healthy, I, I think, you know, again, they're a top five team uh, without her. It's obviously that they struggle, even though you have Kendra Falby and Sam Rowe, Reagan Walsh. I mean, go on and on. There are a lot of athletes that have women's college world series experience, but it doesn't matter when your leader is out, it makes a profound difference. So, um, you know, that was the big thing that I saw from Florida uh, at, at the Mary Nutter. Who's up next? I'll go. Speaking of one of the teams that beat Florida this weekend, how about the ducks? You know, the Oregon ducks, when I was looking at them coming into the weekend, they felt like a bubble team. Are they a top 25 team? Are they a top contender in the Pac-12? Well, I think that they proved that they absolutely deserve to be in the top 25 without the doubt, probably the top 20. And they are one of those top tier Pac-12 teams. And a lot of thanks to Stevie Hansen for the Ducks. She got four wins on the weekends, was amazing in the circle. She's Pac-12 pitcher of the week because of it. She had 22 innings pitched on the weekends. On the weekend, she had a 1.27 ERA at the Nutter. Shut out Florida. She had complete game win against North Western. She beat Mizzou. Um, she came in in the UC San Diego game and the Sunday game and was just really lights out, pounded the zone. So really impressed with what Stevie Hansen's doing early in the season. And most importantly, the improvement from not only last season, but she got touched up a little bit in the first two games of the season against teams like Maryland. So good to see her bounce back and respond in a really positive way for the Ducks. And then, you know, on the other side of things, offensively, Oregon led by Allie Bunker and Tara McGowan. Allie Bunker had six hits on the weekend, six RBIs. Tara McGowan had five hits, four RBIs. They led the way for the Ducks. Both of them have four home runs each on the season, so they lead the way in the power numbers. And, you know, defensively, the Ducks made some really, really solid plays, too, to help their pitching staff and just got complete game victories in a lot of different ways. So uh, I was really impressed with Oregon. They're a, they're a team that could surprise a lot of people this season, so watch out for the Ducks, Amanda. Yeah, and we also got a potential name of this episode, um, Play with Pizzazz. I kind of like that one that Michelle said, and I really didn't expect it whenever she said the word pizzazz, but I'm kind of into it. Um, Kayla, to, to continue to roll about the Pac-12, um, you were just talking about Oregon. They really had a good weekend in the desert. Cal walked away with a 5-0 and record along with OU. They were the only two teams that didn't lose a game. UCLA and Utah both went 5-1, and and Oregon finished 4-1. and run- four and one. So four out of the five teams with the best records of the weekend came from the Pac-12. All right, moving down to number three on the lineup card. What else was happening outside of the Mary Nutter that we need to get up to date on? What do you guys think, Jenny or Madison? Well, when it comes to outside of Nutter, I feel like all of us had so much attention on Mary Nutter that there was a lot going on outside of Palm Springs that maybe could take you by surprise. 
One of those was Arkansas. They opened up at home against Arizona, a three-game series against them, came away with two wins, also played Drake on the weekend with two wins against Drake. But Chanice Dels, still so good in the circle, got both wins over Arizona, named the National Pitcher of the Week by NFCA right now. It was a 3-2 win. It was a hard-fought win for them. Hannah Gamble, it's a name we are so familiar with, a walk-off single in the seventh, and it was a 10-pitch at bat. Not only is she an amazing power hitter, but her patience and her ability to just get balls out of the strike zone or get balls out of the way until she can capitalize on the one that she wants. And this was the first time Arkansas has beat a ranked opponent in its home opener ever. So that's pretty cool. And then for the first time in forever, I don't know about you guys, but the run game is never anything I think about when I think about Arkansas. They had four stolen bases in one game. So kudos to Arkansas for figuring that out. Um, It's exciting to see Arkansas have a different approach to scoring. If they're going to bring speed into it, it's not just the long ball anymore. And that changes how you have to defend Arkansas. Um, Kylie Halverson had the walk-off single against Drake. There were some tight games for the Razorbacks, um, but it moves them to 13-3 and on the year. Another team I had my eye on across the country was UCF. You know, this is a team that coach head coach Cindy Ball Malone has said she wants to challenge to boost her RPI so that they can make it to host not just a regional this year, but host a super regional. So she's pushing for a top eight seed at the postseason. Because of that, this team does not get to catch their breath. She has absolutely brought so much firepower against them, and they are truly going to be tested. Um, but when it comes to this last weekend, they went into the weekend five and seven, and they did get a chance to maybe take a little bit of a breath. They played Gardner-Webb, Louisville, and Purdue. They won them all except their one game against Louisville, and it was a run rule. And you just wonder, is it a situation where they had to take a break and they forgot to just come out with, with fire? But for me, watching UCF, they travel back to California this weekend to play in the Judy Garman Classic. And they pick up more top 25 games that they have to play. And then they play Florida in a midweek right after this. So Coach Cindy Ball Malone is definitely not letting her team catch a break. And then one other team that caught our eye, I think, in Clearwater was Oklahoma State. The only loss they have on this season is to Maryland. They were perfect in Clearwater and they got five wins this last weekend. But I'm going to say these were not games that were going to challenge them. They played in Las Cruces, New Mexico. They won three of their games via the run rule. They have five hitters hitting 400 or better. They have 23 team home runs. This team can definitely hit, um, but this weekend won't test them too hard. But the week after, they've got Florida State coming into Stillwater for a three-game series. I think that's the weekend I've circled for them um, to see how they're going to do against some better talent. But right now, they're getting a chance to catch their breath. Kelly Maxwell, that changeup. Lexi Kilfoyle with that drop. Definitely a dynamic duo. Madison, who else did you have your eye on outside of Nutter? Well, there were so many great matchups this weekend. Um, The first one that came to mind was the Virginia Tech-Texas matchup, uh, and they ended up splitting that, each of them winning a game. Uh, Emma Lemley in the circle for Virginia Tech getting the win in game one. It was Cameron Fagan that came through with the game-winning hit for them. But for Texas, I even got an opportunity to talk with Kat Osterman briefly before doing this podcast, and she said you want to keep an eye on those freshman infielders for Texas between Viviana Martinez and Leanne Good. 
good. They were fantastic. Martinez with five RBI against Virginia Tech in their win in that second game. Um, another matchup that we had this past weekend was Louisiana going up against LSU. Another split down the middle. Uh, Carly Heath and Victoria Valdez for the Raging Cajuns doing fantastic. But also Taylor Pleasance for LSU had a little bit of a down year last year, but she seems to be firing on all cylinders, batting above 400 to start off this season. Um, Baylor ended up beating Maryland this past weekend. It was Shaylin Govan with another three-run home run, which she did the same thing against Oklahoma to beat them last weekend. So she's somebody to keep an eye on. Uh, and another one, uh, Bama ended up losing to Kennesaw State this weekend. Uh, the big question for Alabama who is going to be able to pitch behind Montana Fouts? And I still think they're trying to find their footing. Um, but when Montana Fouts is in the circle, mixing those speeds, mixing that that drop ball that she's got down in the zone, she can be absolutely nasty. But those are just kind of a quick run through of some of the other top matchups that we saw last weekend. So many good games. A couple more things to note. Devin Nats from Arizona really continues to shine as one of the best two-way players of the season. She hit four home runs in Fayetteville as Arizona was in that tournament and drove in 10 runs in five games you guys city mckinney is still hitting over 715 games 708 to be exact. don't go steal my shag and stat now wait that's mine too <laughs> should i just stop right here i'm sorry we also didn't talk about shag and stats and that will be interesting when we get down to the bottom of the lineup card it'll it'll be spicy um and then finally to note i'll just stop on city mckinney from wichita state but also to know, I mean, freshman Maya Davis, the Louisiana center fielder, if you haven't seen her play or her catch that she made in Baton Rouge playing LSU when Louisiana gave LSU its first loss of the season, definitely one to Google, find on Twitter. It was unbelievable. One of the best center fielders already as, as a freshman in the country. Moving on down to number four on the lineup card, we have a special interview with one of the best pitchers in our sport to ever pick up a ball, Monica Abbott. Um, last week, we told you that there was breaking news, and it was that she announced her retirement. And this week, we wanted to get her on the show to speak to her about her long, incredible career and her decision to retire. So, Monica, thanks for being with us. Um, why did now feel like the right moment for you to retire? Well, thanks for having me. I love your guys' show. Big fan. Um, listen to it a lot. Um, but, you know, I think the game's in a good place. I feel like when you played a long time, you start to think about towards the end of your career, you start to think about, okay, when is a good time? What's a good exit strategy? And how, how do I play long enough that I don't burn myself out, but also play long enough that I leave like the field inside? Like, um, and that was really important to me. So last year, I went into the year kind of knowing that, hey, like, I'm coming towards the end, the end of ends. And, um, when you know, you know, I guess is as they say, but uh, I feel good and the timing was right. And Monica, um, you've had an amazing uh, run in Japan, obviously, as well as with uh, Team USA. And I know the question that I always got asked all the time was, um, what's your greatest moment with Team USA? And I know it's very hard to answer. So I am going to ask you to answer this one. What do you feel like is your greatest moment with Team USA? Gosh, I have so many good moments. So it's like hard to pick, like you said. Um, obviously, anytime you wear Team USA, and it, one that's always going to st stand out, you know, the moment that you make the big team, Michelle, like as you know, and you, you're always going to remember that first game. Um, mine was in 2005. I was, you know, a sophomore in college and like didn't talk to anyone the entire summer, but 
the first time I was able to wear a Team USA jersey. But I think I love to see how the game has grown. So obviously being able to do the 2008 Olympic Games and then come back, you know, all those years later and do the 2021 Games um, was pretty incredible. But last year gave me a lot of a different perspective on Team USA because you know, the Olympics were out again for uh, uh, 2024, but, and we had the world games in Birmingham and we were able to play in a huge, like back in that SEC environment, huge crowd at softball. And we had a great mix of like a couple Olympians, myself, Ali Carta, Bubba Nichols, Michelle Moultrie on the team and Deja Malipola. And then we had a lot of those up and coming college stars. So it was good to see the perspective from new eyes and um, kind of to see where the game was going to go with those young athletes. And uh, Monica, I think one thing we talk about a lot uh, between each other is the growth of the game and how much that it's grown. And I would love to know from your perspective, from somebody who's played at such a high level, collegiately, internationally, professionally, where have you seen the most growth in our sport throughout your career? Um, I think I would say coverage, you know, coverage, creates conversation, right? Coverage creates education. And it doesn't matter whether that's TV, whether it's Twitter, whether it's, you know, IG posts or YouTube, and it's creating a a ripple effect across the world right now in softball. And I think you see that as this next generation of athletes are coming through is they're so much more um, neural and smart about the game. They understand the intricacies. They understand the game because people, they've been listening to it. And they've been talking about it since they were eight years old. Whereas the generations before them, they had less time. They only talked about it when they were in high school. You know, like I wasn't really on TV until, you know, I was, my college career was like that first wave of um, TV, TV coverage in the World Series and SEC tournaments and like that. So I think as we see more and more coverage, it creates more conversation and education within the sport. And that has really caused the most growth. Uh, you know, Monica, you're one of the biggest reasons for the for the growth. We talked about you last week on our podcast and how you going from California to the SEC was a huge deal for that conference and making our sport better. And now that you're at your retirement and you went from California to Tennessee, looking back, was there anything now at your retirement age that you would tell that young girl that is going to make that huge leap and you don't really know what you're going to do yet what would, would you have any like words of advice words of wisdom now looking back man I would as a young girl making that decision it was so exciting and like ready for adventure right um but man it's kind of scary too right if I could tell myself one thing it would just be to like continue to stick with it um and be open to to continuing to grow and change and just put yourself out there earlier it took me a while to really open up from my shell. And um, it took me a while to, in a, in a way, be vulnerable, allow people in and um, bring them on along my journey. I wish I would have done that a little bit earlier. But I think when I did do that, that's when the softball world and my game really opened up. And when it comes to self-talk, I know when you spend time in the circle, you're all by yourself and the weight of the world probably feels on your shoulders. And our game's a game of failure. So what is it that you did to make sure that your self-talk was positive to be able to give yourself longevity? I think it's all about like framing, right? Like how do you frame your self-talk um, and how do you frame it in a positive way or in a, in a way that can challenge you? I often tell people um, when you talk to yourself, 
talk to yourself in a positive, challenging way. So Monica, like not just you got this, Monica, you got this rise ball. Monica, you can do it. You can do it right now. Monica, you know, like those sort of actions with with that positive change and reframing what you're what you're telling yourself and that you can do that across the board on the softball field in the pitcher's circle. Um, and, you know, for all my pitchers out there, just a word of advice. Do all your thinking in practice, <laughs> all the thinking in practice. And, but no, definitely stay positive and challenge yourself in a circle and embrace that. That'll help. Always get advice for every pitcher. Um, I can speak from experience. I know. Um, last question for you, but what's next for you? What do you, what do you have coming up? Um, you know, uh, Kayla here told me that I need to write a bucket list, so I'll probably do that tonight, (laughs) but, um, you know, for me, you know, I'm just, I guess just be Monica Abbott and work on educating and finding new ways to be a part of softball. Um, I have a book coming out in April, which is exciting. Um, yeah. So help publish that not, not publish it, but help, you know, hopefully people like it. Gosh, I got nervous there for a second. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm nervous. <laughs> hopefully people like it. Hopefully it's good. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's called rise and shine the Monica Abbott story and um, hoping everyone loves it because obviously I'm nervous about it. <laughs> what a perfect title. That's um I love that rise is in there. That's perfect. Uh, Well, thanks for joining us. I think that I can speak for all of us to to say that we loved watching you, your impact on this sport, the legacy that you've left. And selfishly, I love that I got a chance to pitch against you, but uh, we're all wishing you the best moving forward. Thanks, Monica. Okay. Moving down to number five, talking trends. Our game is growing you guys and changing dramatically as even uh, Monica was just talking about in her interview. And you can see it year to year, but even almost week to week with the different trends that we as analysts notice within our sport. So we thought it'd be fun to share some, um, some things already this season that has stood out to us. So, uh, Michelle, what have you noticed early on this, this softball season? Well, one of the things that I wanted to go back and, and chat a little bit about too, is Devin Nets, right? Of course, she's going to love hitting in Fayetteville. Cause remember that's the, the park in the sec with the highest altitude. And we know that that's obviously the case for Arizona's too. So <laughs> the wildcats, they love to bop, bop the ball when the, they're in those FCC parks, especially at Arkansas. Um, so to your question, Amanda, I think for me, it's, it's three distinct things quickly. Um, it's parity number one there are so many good mid-majors that can run with power five teams i mean look at cal state fullerton cal baptist kennesaw state lehigh wichita state boise state any of those programs can go head to head with any of the power five teams you get your ace out there again we talked earlier maybe they're just spinning it they might be not blowing it past you at 70 72 miles an hour but they have really good movement they have change of pace so they fool you in a different way and if your program uh, or your athletes don't have enough experience to be able to really uh, hit offensively hard and soft you're probably going to struggle so number one for me was parity um, and, and that kind of rolled into number two offensively is inability sometimes for the offense to not make adjustments game to game. And sometimes it comes back to, uh, you know, really understanding your opponent and who you're seeing. But if you don't scout them, you're only seeing a a club one time a year. You might not have a really good book on them, knowing what every pitcher is throwing, especially when you have four or five pitchers to prepare for. So that would that would be number two trend I'm seeing. 
But number three that I saw, Amanda, we talked about this in Clearwater, is that I think that there are a lot of pitching staffs where the ace has had to come in for number two or three or four because the coaches are a little bit worried that the game's too close. And so when these younger pitchers are getting in trouble, they're not gaining that experience of how to get out of trouble. All of a sudden they start looking to the bullpen and seeing the ace of the staff starting to warm up. So so I think it's been parity, it's offensive adjustments, and that third trend that I'm seeing is that I think there's a quick hook uh, nowadays. So what are you seeing, Maddie? Yeah, specifically, I was looking uh, from an offensive perspective, and I thought it was interesting, and I know our friends at 643 Charts might be able to help me out throughout the season, kind of keep a better track on this, but it's it's not just the two strike hits but it's the two strike extra base hits. And you even take a small sample size in the Mary Nutter game, even the, the UCLA Oklahoma game for the six home runs that Oklahoma hit were on two strikes, not to mention two outs, but two strikes. Um, even Grace Lorsung that hit the home run off of UCLA for Kentucky, that was a two strike home run. Uh, Maya Brady uh, seems to be the queen of two strike doubles out into the gap for UCLA. So I, I, and I even think back to Clearwater and there's a ton of hits that are coming to my mind that were two strike hits. The walk off uh, for Oklahoma State to beat Virginia Tech was a pinch hit. Katie Lott coming in a two strike hit walk-off win for them. So there's a lot of two-strike extra base hits that I think are making an impact. Now, am I going to put that all on the pitchers? No, because some of them are some really good swings on some good pitches. And the Jada Coleman home run is one that comes to mind. That pitch was in the other batter's box. um, And and there's not much you can do on it if you're a pitcher. So I think that's a trend that I'm going to be watching throughout the season is just how these hitters are able to adjust. And and gone are the days are the shorten up and just try to tap it and put it in play two-strike approach. I mean, these hitters are still going up there to launch the ball out of the park in those two strike counts. And they've been able to do it at a pretty consistent clip, I would say, through the first couple of weeks of the season. So funny that all these trends are really more about the offenses growing and being so much more dynamic. And Maddie, such a good point about the two strike approach. Like I remember we were taught, you know, at a young age to really choke up and just try to put your bat on it and put it in play, maybe not in college, but before that. And that's just not really the case anymore. That made me giggle thinking back to um, my days as a young softball player. And I was going to say, I've noticed with the offense, very quick adjustments the second time through the order. I, I have felt like one time through a pitcher like Emma Lemley might get nine strikeouts or strikeout eight out of nine. And that second time through the order, offenses are prepared. They have been more on a pitcher, quick adjustments, communication in the dugout, noticing trends, using the data that's inside the dugout. So I do feel like that there have been times, maybe not every game, I'm not saying that, but what stuck out to me are the times when there have been those quick adjustments at second time through the order, bam, these hitters are prepared and ready. Okay. Moving to number six on your lineup card, travel woes. Uh, you guys life outside of being a student athlete entails a ton of travel. And it really stuck out to me last weekend when I was in Palm Springs, um, hearing from a bunch of different teams, but especially in the month of February and the beginning of March, when these teams are playing tournaments and playing five games on a weekend, sometimes playing a midweek game, And I think all too often that fans just pay attention to what's happening in between the lines with stats and scores. And they literally have no idea the challenges that a student athlete often faces. So some of these these challenges that I saw last weekend, and it was kind of unbelievable. Florida had major travel delays. They weren't able to take their original flight to Palm Springs Wednesday early, early morning. They had to rebook for Thursday morning, woke up at 4 a.m. Eastern, then flew into Ontario, California, drove an hour or 
whatever the distance is. Then they got to their hotel in Palm Springs about 1 p.m. Pacific time, changed, and then turned around and played UCLA just a few hours later. So when you think about how long of a day that is, essentially waking up at 1 a.m. Pacific time and then playing a game later that night, it's insane what they went through. And nobody ever really talks about it because these coaches and teams don't complain. Texas Tech had a layover in Phoenix on their way home from Mary Nutter. Their flight was canceled, so they had to bus from Phoenix to Lubbock. That's an 11-hour drive. Washington's flight home while they were playing in the Mary Nutter got completely canceled from Palm Springs to Seattle. So they had to find a way to completely rebook their entire team. I mean, this is not easy stuff that these teams deal with, and that's just the travel. But this happens all the time. Athletes are dealing with challenges and then they're having to play and compete at the highest level, get home and then also be, you know, a student or turn around and and leave again. So I thought it'd be interesting to shed some light on the student athlete experience that that we've all had uh, balancing school and softball. And Jenny, I know you actually canceled your flight to Palm Springs and you have a daughter who, you know, just was a student athlete. Um, so why don't you start just, you know, what are, what are your thoughts on this situation? Well, I think when it comes down to it, you have to remember what these young ladies are. They're student athletes, not athlete students. And so school is a priority. So your classes, you have to plan around those. And to get the grades, there's usually mandatory study hall hours that coaches impose. And those study hall hours are not just done at home. You do them on the road. And so sometimes you're in a team room or, you know, you're all over the place trying to get your homework done, trying to write your papers. And then, oh yeah, you've got to prepare to play the number one team in the nation. I mean, the, the struggles that these athletes go through and from the, from the player standpoint, think about how you play your best. You play your best when you are well-rested, when you are well-hydrated And when you have good fuel or good food that has been nourishing you, right? Well, in the middle of a season, and especially in February, when you're traveling so much, the flights are dehydrating you, you're eating on the run, you're not sleeping well, you're in a hotel room, maybe you're with different teammates every week, so you're not as comfortable as normal. You're trying to fit in how to meet with your family so they're happy. You're trying to figure out how to prepare for your games. There is so much on the plate of an athlete. I remember back in Arizona, we were traveling to Texas to play and we got to our connection and the flight was just canceled. And we played the next day and Coach Candrea, you know, was arguing with the airline to try to figure out how to get us there. And the airline's accommodation was to give us a room where we all could sleep on the floor and then get on a plane the next morning. So Coach Candrea literally slept by the door so nobody could come in. And then we got on a plane the next day, got there in time to change into our uniforms and play. I mean, there's so much that goes into it. I was talking with Maddie a little bit ago about when teams lose early in the season, I think there needs to be almost an explanation next to it in case it was due to travel or weather or whatever it is, because these bad losses affect these teams later on down the road. And if you've got a bad loss in February, you better make sure you make up for it down the stretch in conference play so that the committee doesn't look back to that early loss and give you a little notch or a ding in your cap. I don't know about you guys, but I think most of us got really tired of sandwiches because that's usually the go-to. And so at the end of a season, you know, your parents are like, let's go out, let's go grab a sandwich. And you're like, no more sandwiches. Literally, I will eat anything other than a sandwich. But um, every sandwich place across the country I know is good at the to-go box, but we are over it. 
Kayla, what else? Uh, yeah, really quickly, just a, a couple of things. I think number one, the expectation, I think for a lot of people outside of the bubble of softball is like you're chartering. Like you're lucky if you charter like once, maybe twice a year, if you're going to the World Series. Like I know that's like the glamorous look you see on Twitter, all these teams like, oh, we're hopping off the plane to the World Series. Like that is not how you travel the majority of the time. You're talking about long bus rides, stinky charter bus. Like you're talking about uh, connections, long flights, trying to book for 30 people. Shout out to all the director of ops out there that plan all of these trips. And when they get derailed, everything falls on them. The director of ops are the unsung heroes of these college softball programs. Uh, So kudos to all the director of ops out there. But, you know, I will say on the other side of things, like from the travel woes perspectives, there are ways that the travel problems turn into like team bonding opportunities. Like some of my best memories and some of the things that my team still talks about all the time are from my home trip. We went to Oregon for spring break one year and it was the trip from hell. Like I'm talking multiple delays, like getting in a day later, rampant stomach flu going through the team. Everybody's miserable. Half the team had to fly one day, half the team had to fly another day. But um, that was like our 2012 national championship team game season, whatever. And my team will still talk about to this day, like, thank goodness we played in Oregon and went through all of that because playing in the national championship game and the rain was nothing compared to that horrible Oregon trip. So, you know, for all the travel woes, there are, there are some incredible stories that bring teams together too. Uh, such a good story and unsung heroes could potentially be a, the title of the podcast or maybe stinky charter bus. I don't know. I kind of giggled at that one and thought that it was really great. Um, moving down to number seven on the lineup card. Don't forget about Tennessee. What's going on on Rocky top since Tennessee didn't play in the tax act, Clearwater invitational or the Mary Nutter. It's kind of easy to forget what they're doing over there in Knoxville, but they had a big win this weekend against Clemson and a one Oh game. And they're slowly creeping up the rankings now at number six in today's ESPN.com and USA softball top 25 poll. Kayla, why should we start paying closer attention to Tennessee? Not that we, I say start, but why should maybe other people start? We, we in this group, we're all paying attention to Tennessee. So let's learn a little bit more about them. Yeah, I think Tennessee is one of those teams, like you mentioned, they just haven't necessarily played a ton of big games this year. So they haven't been mentioned as much. That being said, they, they are not a team to look over this season because number one, they have a ton of depth in the pitching circle. And I don't think we talked about Tennessee too much about how well they did in the transfer portal in the offseason. Karen Weekly went out and got some really, really important pieces. The first was Peyton Gottschall from Bowling Green, really dynamic pitcher to add to their staff to help out Ashley Rogers. Um, so their pitching staff is really well-rounded. Uh, Peyton Gottschall, Carlin Pickens, a freshman. She's the SEC freshman of the week. And Ashley Rogers, they all have under one ERA. They are really well balanced. And here's a stat that I really like for those top three pitchers. They only combined, Michelle, like open up your ears, six walks on the season given up. They only have six walks. Like talk about efficiency. They're number two in the country in strikeout to walk ratio. The only team that's better than them is Auburn actually. Um, So in the circle, they're locked down, well-rounded, a lot of depth, which is what they needed to support Ashley Rogers, who is already a dynamic, one of the best pitchers in the country. And then beyond that, go back to that transfer portal. They pick up Mackenzie Donahue, who's playing shortstop for them and leadoff. And then uh, Julia uh, Katsoyanopoulos from Arizona is catching for them and playing a big role offensively for them as well. So they had holes. 
Karen Weekly went out in the offseason and she filled those holes so that they could be more depth, more well-rounded team. And then I just have to say before I pass this off to Maddie, who I know has a lot to say as a former Lady Vol herself, was um, Kiki Malloy. Like we talk a lot about Skylar Wallace and her role on uh, Florida's team and how she's dynamic and how she can run the bases well, how she sets the tone. She's like a spark for their entire offense. That's Kiki Malloy for Tennessee. Like you got to watch that kid play. She is a ball player. 472 on the season, six home runs, five doubles, nine stolen bases. Like the girl can play. And not to mention that she hasn't made an error in center field since 2021. So she's just one of those players, like young kid, go watch that kid ball. Uh, Maddie, what else you got on balls? Well, I wanted to touch on Kiki Molloy really quick because we were just talking about making those adjustments the second time through the lineup. And when they were playing Clemson, she struck out on a drop ball off of Valerie Cagle, which we know one of the best pitchers in the country. And that drop ball is nasty. Struck out on a drop ball her first at bat. The next at bat, she comes up, she gets to a 2-0, a good hitter's count, and then drives an outside drop ball for a double into the right center gap. So she's just one of those hitters that you just want to watch. She loves to be aggressive early in the count, but she's not afraid to get into those good leverage hitters hitters counts to be able to utilize her speed when she gets on base. Um, But really, you touched on everything, Kayla. I've been really impressed with their pitching staff. Again, the talks for the past couple of years is who's going to be able to back up Ashley Rogers so that she can stay healthy for the length of the season. And I do think they have some two really great arms. You mentioned Peyton Gottschall coming over. Um, But Carlin Pickens was so impressive against Clemson. Being a freshman, getting put into that position to be able to to have to play against a top-level competition, I, I think she mixed speeds really well she doesn't just rely on one pitch and she's got pitches coming out of her hand that are running in different directions and because of that it never felt like Clemson could get comfortable in the box and the first time through the order maybe she's working more for hard stuff second time through the order mixing speeds a little bit more so she was just constantly keeping them on their toes Uh, they could never really square up anything and I was really impressed with the composure that she brought in the circle from from such a young age Um, but something else I'm looking forward to tracking for the rest of the season offensively for Tennessee is it's going to be Chris Malvo's second year with the Lady Vols. And we all know what he did at his time at Missouri and how those hitters just got better and better every single year. So I'm really looking forward to seeing what the hitters are able to do under him for another year of all of his teachings and what he's been able to bring over and what he talks about the lower half and utilizing your legs to be able to get that power behind the ball. So that's something that I'm going to be tracking for the Lady Vols looking forward. But so far, a very balanced team when it comes to offense, defense pitching in the circle um, and you can see why they're very quickly moving up the ranks yeah and Madison and Kayla one thing I want to add real quick about Tennessee is congratulations to Karen Weekly because she earned win number 1000 over the weekend uh, defeating obviously Clemson but then uh, later on that that day Illinois Chicago she picked up uh, win win number 1000 so pretty pretty special uh, weekend for her as well can I selfishly say I'm loving all this Lady Vol love on the podcast this week between uh, yeah. me and Monica and the, the Lady Vols and Karen Weekly. I'm liking it. Well, the two of you kind of flirted. What, Kayla, especially, you almost stole my stat. I was about to jump in. <laughs> Be careful. <laughs> So uh, the team ERA for Tennessee is 0.85. They have four pitchers with a sub one ERA. Their team has given up also zero unearned runs. So they're not making too many stakes on defense at all. They've scored 104 runs and only given up nine, all of them earned. All right, time to move to number eight. It's time to shag some stats, ladies. Michelle, what's your stat? 
Uh, well, I had just kind of mentioned that Kayla almost stole it. And now, Amanda, you almost stole it. <laughs> so all good. My shag and stats. Um, there's actually two numbers. All right. Eight and three. There are eight pitchers still with a zero ERA in <laughs> in, in division one. Sorry, Amanda. I think I may have stole yours. Okay. And that brings me to three. There are three pitching staffs with a sub one ERA. And that is Auburn that you mentioned, Kayla, Tennessee that we were just talking about, and also Clemson. So those are my shagging sets. All right, Michelle, I will be nice and not steal Sydney McKinney because I know we were all going to fight over her. So I will leave her for the end because she pretty much is a big exclamation point on this one. But I will go back to the long ball because that's what I love. There are 48 players in the country right now with six home runs or more. And uh, leading it, is Jordan Van Hook at Arizona State. She has nine home runs in 13 games. All right, Jenny. Well, I'm going to go in a completely different direction, and I don't think anybody has my stat, and I don't think I'm going to be stealing anybody's. Uh, I want to shout out Grambling State University. They lead the country with 56 stolen bases, but the more impressive stat to me is they've only been caught stealing one time, you guys. They are 56 for 57 on stolen bases. Like, that is so hard to do. I don't care how fast you are. Like, that's an incredible stat. Uh, Maddie, what's your shagging stat? So I love that I'm going after you in this order because I'm actually going to give a nod to some of the leadoff batters that we're seeing throughout the season, a record-breaking leadoff batter. So I've got a couple of different batters I want to shout out. Kayla Kowalik at Kentucky is now the all-time Kentucky hits leader after she got her 286th career hit this past weekend. Uh, We've mentioned Sydney McKinney. She is the first shocker in history to reach 300 hits for that program. And freshman Kenley Kahalen for Alabama passed Haley McClinney's record for the longest hitting streak to start a career. Haley McClinney's record was 13, um, and she passed that on Saturday. So record-setting uh, leadoff batters that we're seeing this season. Okay, we've talked entirely too much about hitters on this episode of Seven Innings Podcast, and Michelle, we got to get some pitcher, some more pitcher love in there. You started it, and I'm going to one-up you about your stat, because you, you that was a little bit like what I already, where my attention was going with pitchers who still have a 0.00 ERA but there are just three pitchers who have pitched over 20 innings and have yet to give up an earned run. That'd be Maddie Penta from Auburn. She's not given up an earned run. You guys in, I have 30 innings, but I feel like that was supposed to actually be, I think 39 innings typed it up wrong. So 39 innings, no earned run. Nigeri Kennedy from Stanford freshman hasn't given up an earned run in 31 innings and Nicole May from OU still hasn't given up an earned run in 21 innings. Okay, great stats. That was fun. I think I kind of like the mystery of when we don't know what each other's stat is, Jenny. Okay, but hold on. Then nobody did Sydney McKinney. You've got to be kidding me. I we did have- McKinney. I did okay. McKinney. You did. did. Yes. Yes. But her- please give her give her some more love. Jenny. I got to give her some more love. I have to. She right now is hitting 708 on the season. Not just in a weekend, but in the season. That's 34 hits in 48 at-bats. Ridiculous. And if you think about what is the season-long record for batting average, it's Sarah Graziano who holds the single-season batting average record of 589. It was set back in 1994. I want to see if Sydney McKinney is able to break the 29-year record. 
Yeah, Graziano, a player who played for Coastal Carolina, and big shout out to Graham Hayes for pulling that stat out of the history books for sure. Okay, finally, uh, wrapping things up with number nine, let's go to the mailbag. We have just one question that we're going to get to today. This is from Rennie Urena. They ask, what are some of your favorite schools, stadiums that you enjoy calling games from? What comes to mind, you guys? Well, I'm going to say atmosphere, the Rhodes House. Alabama. And then for facility, Amanda, I know you're going to love this. Davis Diamond, Texas A&M, outstanding. Those are the exact same two I was thinking, Michelle. You nailed it. Because the Rhodes House does have an atmosphere that is absolutely electric. That fan base knows softball and definitely knows how to cheer, when to cheer, and how to make a difference in a game. And Amanda, your Aggies, that stadium is absolutely beautiful. How about the Cajuns in Louisiana? Have you guys been to it? Have you called a game at Lafayette? Like that stadium gets rocking. That is loud. They have like a, a, I don't know, a metal overhang that the sound just bounces on. That place gets pretty stinking fun to call a game at. Vogel Park in Arkansas, they get pretty loud over there too. I was there for regionals last year and I really enjoyed the atmosphere of being able to have everybody on that berm out in the outfield. I think it is really cool from an opponent standpoint. You feel like you're surrounded by by everybody when you're on that field. So pretty cool being in Fayetteville. I think pretty, pretty scenery definitely goes to Washington. I did the Seattle regional last year. And I mean, you're looking at Mount Rainier and literally Eagles are just bald Eagles are just flying over the field. Um, There's no other place like it. I don't think Um, now the, you know, press box could get a little upgrade, but um, the views are definitely worth it. Okay. Go ahead. I, I was, was going to say, I wanted to give one more shout out to, to Virginia Tech because I like the view of the football stadium out there in left field. I thought that was uh, that is a really cool uh, bit of scenery, too. And the cool part about there, when you call a game from there, they actually put a camera like up in one of the offices in the football stadium and shoot the field from there. So that uh, that control room definitely gets kudos. Lots of props for me for being creative in uh, their camera positioning. All right. Good stuff, guys. I think that's all for us in this episode of the Seven Innings Podcast. I think next week we should recap some games in Fullerton at the Judy Garman Classic. Um, and we'll see how AM does. They're traveling to Waco. They're going to play Baylor a couple of times. So I feel like that will be an interesting matchup. And then we'll dive more into the ACC as this weekend they actually begin their ACC conference games. I can't believe it, but Notre Dame will start out at Duke this weekend. So one to keep your eye on. Uh, for Madison Shipman, Caleb Brown, Michelle Smith, Jenny Dalton Hill. I'm Amanda Scarborough, and we're signing off. We'll see you next week on the road to the Women's College World Series. 